Today's episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra, as always, is sponsored by Badger State Brewing. That's right. You've heard us talk about Badger State throughout this season, and that's because we truly enjoy their brews and we think that you might enjoy them too. It's hard to beat my all-time favorite Grassy Place Hazy IPA and Brewski Lager, at least in our opinion. But if beer's not quite your thing, Badger State also makes some outstanding ciders and seltzers that might be right up your alley. In addition to brewing some excellent drinks, Badger State's brewery itself is a trip worth taking. Whether you're looking for a great place to meet up before an event, to catch some live music with their summer concert series, or maybe just hang out in their outdoor space and play yard games, Badger State is the place for you. Check out their website, badgerstatebrewing.com, for menus, distribution locations, merchandise, and information on their summer events and activities. Before we jump into today's episode, we want to share a quick note with listeners. Our statistics show that thousands of you, nearly 50% of all those who tune in each week to hear the latest Cold Case Frozen Tundra episode, haven't yet subscribed to our podcast on their favorite platform. Not only does subscribing to or following the show on Apple, Spotify, or another podcast platform ensure you'll automatically receive the newest episode each week, but to be fully transparent, it also really helps us as content creators. Subscribing to the show is completely free for you, but it helps us indicate to sponsors and others that we have a devoted group of listeners. If you're unsure how to subscribe, we'll post some quick instructions for common podcast platforms on our Facebook page. So if you're a fan of Cold Case Frozen Tundra and want to help support the show, please consider subscribing today. Now let's get into this week's episode. If you type the name Lori Deppis into an online search platform, you're likely to find that the name Larry Dwayne Hall appears alongside Lori's within the first handful of results. His 2010 confession has inextricably linked him to the case, and perhaps rightly so, despite the lack of any evidence supporting his claim arising in the 12 years since he's admitted his involvement to investigators. But, as you heard in the last episode, Detectives searching for answers in Lori's disappearance did not stop their investigation with Larry Hall's confession. His inability or unwillingness to offer details that would confirm his admission of guilt left investigators with some degree of skepticism. They continued working the case, following up on tips, documenting new leads, and looking into other suspects they had uncovered over their years of searching for answers. One of those suspects was David Frank Spanbauer the well-documented burglar, rapist, and murderer who carried out an entire lifetime of crime in the Fox Valley region of Wisconsin between prison stints. A career criminal who reached his peak of violence in the midst of the early 1990s, Spanbauer died in prison in 2002, having never admitted to any involvement in the disappearance of Lori Deppis. With that said, there are known locations and timelines which place Spanbauer in the area during the period in which Lori vanished. Even more disturbing, we've uncovered the account you heard last week, 
a tale of David Spanbauer using the Fox River Mall, where Lori worked, to identify and stalk another young woman, a woman who, in 1992, was a friend of Lori's, who often spent time with her during the period in which we now know she was being closely watched by the serial killer and rapist. Spanbauer's story highlights the possibility of an alternative to Larry Hall, the chance that someone else, not Larry Hall, is actually responsible for Lori's untimely disappearance. Shockingly, there's yet another story of a potential suspect in the case, another potential perpetrator, not Larry Hall and not David Spanbauer. And it's a link that's maybe even more convincing than anything we've yet heard depending on your point of view. Today, we'll look into that story. I'm Matt Hiskus, and this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra, Season 2, Episode 5, Tim. Hello and welcome back to the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, a university professor, anthropologist, and your co-host for this deep dive into the case of Lori Deppis as we join the decades-long search for answers. As you heard Matt mention in the opening, today we're going to look into yet another compelling suspect in Lori's disappearance. It's a story that will once again challenge us to consider what we know about the case, to perhaps rethink our opinion of who might have committed the crime. But before we begin, we want to make one quick note. Larry Duane Hall and David Frank Spanbauer are two notorious criminals whose names have been raised and published in relation to the Lori Deppis investigation in the past. For this reason, we had no issue with connecting them by name to the stories we've shared in the podcast. The man we will discuss today is different. He is not, to the best of our knowledge, incarcerated. He has never linked himself to the case through any admission of involvement as Larry Hall did. And unlike David Spanbauer, he's not deceased. For these reasons, we'll be respecting his legal right to privacy by using a pseudonym. We'll call him Tim, which is not his real name, and we won't be using a surname at all. We want to be clear that we're not doing this to confuse the story nor to hide any details of the case. We're simply protecting Tim's anonymity as he's never been legally charged nor publicly named as a suspect in Lori's disappearance. It's not our intent to cast guilt upon anyone the so-called trial by media. That's up to a jury. We'll simply be presenting the compelling case for a suspect, but we did want to make you aware that we're using an alias. To fully understand the story, we need to go back to the start of the case. Actually, to the months just before Lori Deppis disappeared in the late summer of 1992, and back to the Fox River Mall where she worked. At that time, the many stores within the Fox River Mall, as you can probably imagine, employed a very large group of staff. Like any other workforce, there was certainly a wide range of ages represented among the store's team members, but the mall was somewhat unique in that the retail environment attracted a larger-than-average group of younger adult employees, those seeking employment while attending school or in the early stages of building their careers. Those we've spoken with who worked with or near Lori during the early 1990s note that the large group of young adults from various stores across the Fox River Mall were, for the most part, friendly with one another and sometimes spent time together before or after their shifts. 
All in all, not too different from any other place of work. The mall was different back then in that time frame. Um, it really was a place for young teens to hang out for hours at the mall, walking um, around the stores. And it was also you were allowed to smoke in the mall at that time. So, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, we would all still, you know, gather in the middle section of the, of the hallway of the mall where the benches were. And there was always like um, the combination garbage slash ashtray sort of situation. And, you know, we would take our smoke breaks out there and you had you like we were in one wing of the mall. And so we really knew everybody in that wing the best. Right. Um, we all would hang out. We, some of us knew each other previously to being employees at our store in the mall. So it was just kind of a gathering place of, Hey, what are you guys doing after work? You know, and chit chatting and just catching up. It was like the water cooler for us young people working at the mall. That's Victoria, Lori's close friend and co-worker at the graffiti store, who you've heard offer insight throughout this podcast. Like other workplaces, within the larger group of friendly employees were other, more closely-knit groups, mostly formed around individual stores. As you'd probably expect, the people who work together regularly develop strong friendships, spending time together during their shifts, as well as hanging out often outside of work. This too sounds like any other work environment you'd find anywhere in the country. Large groups of employees are friendly, but not necessarily close. And within that pool are pods of much better groups of friends. It's not really noteworthy, except that it's important to our understanding of Tim's link to Lori. As we heard in earlier episodes, Lori was very close with her colleagues from the graffiti store. Similarly, Tim was part of a group of friends formed around those who worked together at a store nearby, almost right across the mall corridor from graffiti. Victoria told us employees from the two stores knew each other pretty well. They often chatted during breaks in the common areas in the hallway and also would share music requests. Graffiti played loud music that could be heard by the stores around it. Lori, Victoria, and the others at the graffiti store certainly knew Tim just like they knew the others who worked at stores nearby. Overall, Victoria said Tim didn't stand out as different other than the fact that it was well-known he'd recently aged out of a residential program for troubled teens. Individuals often received placement there after prior legal entanglements, though the circumstances were typically kept secret. Here's Victoria. Because we had all met him initially as this small group of young male juveniles who had all been recently released from a center close to here, um, you know, we knew that there were previous issues with the law with this person, but none of those kids divulged what that was. You could go from, was this petty theft? Did they do something really bad? Like, you know, um, felonies wise or whatever, we didn't know because none of them discussed it, but, you know, we figured they've been rehabbed, so to speak, and they are now out and about and they all seem just like typical young kind of 18 year old boys, right? They got into some trouble. Now they're cleaned up and, 
you know, they acted, I guess, no different than you would think like a typical 18 year old boy, what they were goofy, they were fun, they weren't, they were never belligerent or rude or tried to do anything mean or, you know, illegal. So there was not really any worry about being around them in that sense. Given that Tim generally fit in like any other member of the group of friends, Lori, Victoria, and others were open with him. He was a couple of years younger. He wasn't among their closest friends, but the relationship through their interactions at the mall was certainly cordial. It was generally known at the mall that Tim had expressed some interest in men. He at least experimented with a sexual relationship with a male employee at the mall, but recently Tim had also begun to show an interest in Lori. In fact, on August 19, the day that Lori would later go missing, Tim had asked her on a date, or at least insinuated he'd be interested in dating her. Lori's response was clear but kind. Sorry, she told him, but she already had a boyfriend. In fact, the two had just begun to share that they loved each other. We've already heard that on the night of August 19th, Lori had plans to meet up with Mark, Victoria, and Lisa at the siblings' apartment in Menasha before the friends would head to Tammy's place to watch a movie. As we know, the night would not go as planned. But Victoria told us that also wasn't the only party happening that night. Tim, his friend and co-worker Rob, and two female colleagues also planned to get together on the night of August 19th. The group was going to meet at the end of their shifts after the store closed at Rob's apartment, which was located just over 10 minutes away from the Fox River Mall in a trendy complex that, because it was converted from an old paper mill building that relied on the Fox River for shipping, was located directly on the riverfront. As the evening of the 19th wore on at the Fox River Mall, while Lori and Tammy struggled to work through the computer issue that delayed them from closing their store like usual, The group at Tim's store finished their shift for the night, locked up the store and headed out, planning to meet at Rob's apartment. Only, that's not exactly what happened. This person was was expected to show up at um, a co-worker's apartment and hang out for the evening. And I think the expectation was to kind of be there roughly like after workish um, time, like after the mall closed and, and heading over there. Um, from what I learned from the people that were there at the apartment where, where this person was supposed to have arrived, that they arrived actually a couple hours later than the expected arrival time. And that when he arrived, his behavior was such like so erratic um, that it made the females in the apartment extremely nervous and a little frightened to be around to the point where they exited the scene. They just didn't feel comfortable being around him. Um, He was behaving in a way that seemed almost psychopathic, um, almost in like a heightened rage. Think about like an, like a, what are those, an MMA fighter, like before they get in the cage, they're kind of like, you know, almost like a cage tiger and they're just getting pumped up and ready to like fight. That's the impression that I got. Like he was just very erratic, kind of pacing around and uttering things that just made them all very concerned. And the girls left, he stayed behind. Um, Along with, there was other, there was other things that he was doing and that he had said or done that 
made them very concerned. But um, yeah. During the hours in which Tim did not show up at Rob's apartment, the friends almost certainly posed many of the same questions to each other that we now ask today. Where did Tim go? After all, it was only a short drive from the mall to Rob's and the other three friends made it without issue. Tim had made no mention of needing to make any stops and had committed to come in over to the party. And more importantly, what was Tim doing? We know the group would have gotten to Rob's somewhere between 9.15 and 9.45 p.m., probably toward the earlier side of that range. The stores at the mall closed at 9. Their shift ended shortly thereafter. We also know that Lori, after spending an extra 30 minutes helping to resolve the computer issue before closing graffiti for the night, arrived in Mark and Lisa's parking lot, a further drive from the mall than Rob's, around 10.15 p.m. Certainly, Tim would have made it to Rob's by then, at the latest, unless he was doing something else. And then, as we heard Victoria note, once Tim arrived, he was not acting like himself. He was behaving strangely, to the point that it scared the young women into leaving the apartment. Based on what we've heard to this point, there are definitely some pieces of information that stand out. That Tim had been turned down for a date with Lori earlier that day, that he was hours late to Rob's without an explanation or accounting for his whereabouts. But it's far from a convincing case that Tim may have been involved in Lori's disappearance. But that's where the story takes a darker turn. Though Tim's frantic, breathless demeanor when he arrived at Rob's apartment was certainly concerning to his friends, it definitely registered as strange. It was more than that which ultimately scared his female co-workers into leaving. When he got to Rob's, Tim took a couple of pens, red and black, and began to draw. The images were shocking. One of the times I was being interviewed by the police, they had shown me and uh, just like a piece of notebook paper, drawing paper, um, a, that this person who was behaving erratically in the apartment had drawn that night. And that was one of the things that also after the girls having seen that um, or were aware of that, that were just like, this is, this is too much. And so they left. And on the paper, it had multiple, just think of it like doodles all over a page. It wasn't like one massive image. It was, um, there was an image of a person standing behind another person with like their arms kind of around them, like they were grabbing them from behind. Um, and the person that was being grabbed in the image was wearing clothes. Um, so like the striped top, the, you know, all black biker short style um, shorts. Uh, there was images and it was, was done in with like a black pen and then there was some red pen on there as well to indicate blood there was like a knife drawing like stabbing um but there was it was very you could tell it wasn't just like dude it was very erratic and like when you are mad and you are writing something and you could just tell the pressure of the ink onto the paper that there was frustration or anger along with it as they were drawing i feel like it really resembled the erratic behavior that he presented in the apartment that night. Um.
On that night, as the girls and Rob witnessed Tim's behavior, as they reacted to his dark drawings, they had no idea that less than five minutes away, on the other side of the river, Mark, Victoria, and Lisa had just called the police to report that Lori never came up to the apartment after pulling into the lot. They just finished searching for her themselves for around an hour with no results. When the police asked the friends for Lori's description, the group reported her physical characteristics, of course, as well as the clothes Mark saw her wearing that day when he met up with Lori during her break at the mall. She's wearing a black and white sleeveless top and black shorts, he'd said. The fact that Rob and the two young women were unaware of Lori's disappearance during the time Tim was at the apartment is worthy of note as it indicates how truly strange Tim's behavior must have been. Keep in mind, Tim was their friend. He worked with them and spent time with them often. They weren't typically afraid of him. But that night, with no knowledge that anything unusual had occurred, Tim's behavior and demeanor were so far outside of the norm so disturbing to them that his female friends feared for their safety and were compelled to leave the apartment. Clearly, the fact that Tim was interested in Lori but had been rejected for a date that day, that he was hours late for plans with his friends during, as the group would find out, the exact period in which we know Lori went missing, that he acted extremely out of character that night and that he drew images of a woman being killed who, as it turned out, was wearing the same clothes as Lori all makes a pretty compelling case for Tim as a person of interest in Lori's disappearance. The case would be made even stronger over the days and weeks that followed. As we covered in earlier episodes of this podcast, in the days after Lori went missing, family, friends, and members of the community turned out in massive numbers to assist with the search, to provide information, and to generally offer support wherever possible. It got to the point that those closest to Lori ended up establishing a volunteer headquarters in an effort to organize the search activities and funnel the tremendous outpouring of support into coordinated tasks. Without a doubt, fellow employees from the mall, whether Lori's friends or just concerned members of the public, were among those who quickly joined the effort to search for Lori. They hung posters around town, answered phones, and took down information on potential tips, and even joined with police, members of the Army National Guard, and other community groups to walk through fields and forests in search of any clues. Tim, however, was different. Despite being among those from the mall who were friendly with Lori and, as we know, being interested in dating her, Tim didn't seem to share the other's desire to help find answers in Lori's disappearance. We don't know for certain whether or not he ever showed up to volunteer, but we do know Tim seemed to just fade out of the picture. Here's Victoria. Yeah, I mean, not right away, but like after that couple of weeks, like he, I don't remember seeing him ever again. Like, I mean, literally the store was right across our hall, right across from our store. And suddenly nobody knows how to like, I mean, it's not like we had cell phones like we do today. So it was just, I mean, if you wanted to just take off, you, nobody could get a hold of you. You didn't, they didn't know where you were, but I know that he no longer worked at that store shortly afterwards. As the days turned into weeks, and, in many respects, the focus on finding Lori intensified with the addition of yet another disappearance, that of Ron L. Eichstadt. 
occurring just four days later, community members continued to show their unwavering support for the search. Detectives followed up on the influx of tips that continued to pour in, though few would pan out. Local aviation groups conducted aerial searches. The flyers, which had been placed on every street corner in the Appleton and Menasha areas, now extended to rest stops along major roadways and were even posted to the sides of trucks driving across the country. Local news media churned out stories on the concurrent searches for Lori and Rennell daily. Tim, it seems, had another agenda. They were informed that he had a vehicle or had access to a vehicle, but that vehicle had since been disposed of. However it was disposed of, it, I think they told me that it might have gotten crushed. I want to say that all ha- that, that happened. What I, sticks in my head is being told that that happened within 30 days of her disappearance. While the story that Tim had his car crushed was, as Victoria pointed out, the common understanding of events shared at the time, We've also heard reports in research in this story that Tim may have actually just sold or even donated his vehicle. Whatever the actual fact may be, there's no dispute that in the weeks after Lori disappeared, during the time in which other members of the friend group dedicated their time and energy to aid the search effort, Tim quietly got rid of his vehicle. No one had yet begun to look into him as a person of interest. After that, as we heard Victoria mention, it was as though Tim, too, had vanished. He was off the radar, and to anyone who wanted to keep in touch or maybe had questions for him, he couldn't be found. That's the last we hear from Tim as he relates to the search for Lori. But we do know that at some point, his actions from the night of August 19th were reported to police who, as you'd expect, found the story compelling and wanted to investigate further. According to Victoria and others close to the case, Investigators were able to speak with Tim's friends and colleagues. They, of course, also spoke with and even polygraphed many of Lori's closest friends. But, by all accounts, Tim himself was not particularly cooperative. He left Wisconsin, moving around the country, and, to the best of our knowledge and research, has not been forthcoming with detectives who'd like to speak with him about the night Lori disappeared. Of course, an unwillingness to speak with investigators does not, in itself, equate to guilt. But it does raise questions as to why Tim would be hesitant to assist those searching for someone he knew, someone he cared about enough to ask out on a date. There's one last point to make that, once again, does not necessarily prove guilt in Lloyd's disappearance, but certainly offers a clearer picture of who Tim is as a person and adds to the mounting list of details that point to Tim as an individual capable of committing the crime. In researching this podcast, we were put in contact with a web sleuth, Sean, who, like us, shares an interest in uncovering the truth behind Lori's disappearance. We set up a quick chat with him to compare notes. In his research on the case, Sean had also learned Tim's story and begun to do some digging into Tim's life since he left the state of Wisconsin. He'd been able to track down publicly available court records where Tim has lived for many years, which highlights the fact that Tim has not lived a life free of legal entanglements since 1992. The list, as it happens, is quite extensive. Having seen the records Sean had been able to uncover, we did a little research of our own. We searched court records in other states where Tim has lived and traveled, as well as in Wisconsin, to look into the period around Lori's disappearance. The results were concerning. Court records provide a clear picture across several states, 
of a man who has routine run-ins with law enforcement. Amid a seemingly uninterrupted string of DUIs and other routine but repeated traffic violations are charges that are much more serious. The court records show requests filed by multiple women over the years, asking the court to grant orders of protection against him. Clearly, women in his life have felt he was a threat to them, that he might hurt them without legal intervention. On at least one occasion, charges of domestic assault were filed against Tim, although the records show the case was ultimately dismissed as both Tim and the woman involved appeared to have assaulted each other during the incident, making it impossible for the court to determine guilt. Though we have not been able to speak to Tim about his past and, of most notable interest, his potential involvement in the Lori Deppis case, the court records help us outline the details of Tim's life since the night Lori disappeared. He's a man who's moved often, who's been in and out of trouble with the law, and who, most concerningly, is considered capable of violence to the point that many women in his life have sought legal protection against him. Tim is unlike Larry Duane Hall, who admitted to abducting and killing Lori, but has never been able to offer proof of a link to Lori nor evidence of the crime. Larry's own words are the only evidence against him. Tim has never said much at all, even if only to answer questions from investigators that might assist in the case. Tim is also unlike David Spanbauer, though both have strong ties to the Fox Valley region of Wisconsin and are known to have been at the Fox River Mall. David Spanbauer has a well-documented history of burglary, rape, and murder spanning nearly his entire life. Tim has never been convicted of a violent crime, though court records show he's capable of those acts, or at least many women in his life believe so. Despite the differences between Tim and the others tied to Lori's case, in many ways, Tim's story makes him as compelling a suspect, if not more compelling, than either Larry Hall or David Spanbauer. Tim knew Lori, a fact that cannot be said for certain about Larry or David. On the day that Lori disappeared, Tim had asked her out and was turned down. That night, during the exact time frame Lori pulled into the parking lot at Wilson Court Apartments and was never seen again, Tim was not where he told his friends he'd be. His whereabouts during that time remain unknown. When Tim did arrive at his friend's apartment, he was acting differently than usual. He drew violent images of a man and a woman, a woman whose clothes matched Lori's. In the weeks that followed, Tim got rid of his car, then faded from the lives of those who knew him, eventually leaving the state. He's been largely unwilling to provide any details that might assist in the investigation. And everywhere Tim has gone, he's left a trail of court records showing his propensity for threats and possibly violence towards women. We need to take a closer look at each of the three main suspects going over several of the facts we've heard, as well as the many details we haven't, to see if we can determine the factors that make each more or less likely to have been involved in Lori's disappearance. That's next time on Cold Case Frozen Tundra. We at Cold Case Frozen Tundra would like to thank Victoria, Sean, Kira, and the many listeners and concerned community members who have shared information that helped inform our research on this case. If you have a tip that may aid in the search for Lori Deppis, please reach out to us on the Contact Us section of our website, frozentundrapodcast.com. If you want to keep up with the latest updates and episodes, be sure to follow us or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. 
You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Frozen Tundra Podcast. Our theme music was created by Mario Call 06 and is available on Pixabay. We've written and recorded all the other music used in the show ourselves. <laughs>